This was all a kind of propaganda move by them to try to create pressure on Israel or really stigmatize Israel. The last thing that they're doing is thinking about the well-being of the Palestinians within Gaza. Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Even as Israelis and Jews around the world prepare to celebrate Israel's 70th birthday, Palestinians are marking 70 years since what they call the Nakba, Arabic for catastrophe, when they left their homes or were displaced as Israel was created. This past Friday, 30,000 Palestinians gathered along Gaza's border with Egypt for what they called the March of Return. This event takes place annually, but this year, with the upcoming anniversary in mind, the terrorist group Hamas, which rules Gaza, has done everything it can to attract a large crowd, offering food, water, and even free Wi-Fi. While most of the 30,000 people who came out were peaceful, a small but serious number used the crowd cover to take aim at the border fence, throwing Molotov cocktails, rolling burning tires, and allegedly even attempting to plant explosives. A few people even shot at the Israeli soldiers guarding the border. As the soldiers sought to maintain the border and prevent escalation, they killed 17 Palestinians, at least 10 of whom were known to have been Hamas terrorists. Hamas has vowed to turn out a similarly large crowd each Friday from now until May 15th. Dialing in from Israel to discuss the Gaza protests is Ambassador Dennis Ross of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. As a career diplomat, Ambassador Ross has played a key role in shaping the peace process between Israel and the Palestinians. There are few people alive today who have spent more time than he dealing with the issues of Palestinian refugees, of borders, of the status of Jerusalem, all of which makes him uniquely positioned to help us understand what happened last week in Gaza. So listen in on our conversation. Ambassador Ross, glad to have you with us today. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Let me start off by trying out an analogy on you. In the hit TV show Game of Thrones, the main plot follows all of these major players in the world through war, adventure, palace intrigue. But every now and then, the story touches on the ordinary people whose lives are swept up in and often ruined by the machinations of the stars of the show. Is that a little bit what it's like to be an ordinary person in Gaza today amidst Palestinian infighting and the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Oh, I think there's no question there's some similarity. I mean, the only thing that is probably different is just the level of, I think, dire need that is uh, in Gaza. I mean, look, in Gaza today, there's four hours of electricity a day. There isn't enough electricity to provide energy, electricity to power the sewage treatment plants. 96% of the water is undrinkable. In another couple of years, it won't even be redeemable. So, I mean, the, the conditions in Gaza are, are really uh, abominable. And I think what's apt in terms of your question, if you, if you look at the leaders in, in Gaza, Hamas, which is a an Islamic resistance group, that's what Hamas literally stands for, they're the ones who are governing Gaza. They're in a rivalry with the Palestinian Authority, which is in control uh, of the Palestinian areas of the West Bank. Uh, 
uh, and they, they both, in a sense, vie for leadership. The Palestinian Authority is the one that's recognized internationally, that Hamas is not. And in many ways, what you see, the people in Gaza have been treated as pawns, literally as pawns. Uh, and that sort of, I guess, is what most fits your question. There's no question if they could get out of Gaza, I have no doubt that they would. Uh, the truth is it's very difficult for them to get out of Gaza. Obviously, Israel limits uh, people other than for medical reasons to, to move out of Gaza into Israel uh, or to go to the West Bank. So the numbers are very small, and Egypt keeps its border closed. So you're there in an area where the economic conditions are, are terrible, uh, and there's nobody who's really addressing them. I think this march has been cast largely in a historical context, you know, marking 70 years since uh, Israel's independence or since the Nakba. But is it also a response to these conditions that you're describing? I think that's part of it. I think what Hamas is doing at this point is partly a response to what Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, is doing. He's threatened to cut off the economic uh, money that they provide to Gaza. He did a lot previously to worsen the conditions by cutting the monies that they were giving to former employees of the PA in Gaza. So on the one hand, there's a, there's a kind of rivalry but Hamas doesn't want to look like what it's doing is against the Palestinian Authority. They want to show that they're resisting somehow the Israelis. And so they're also at the same time, the reason they're organizing these kind of mass marches is because they hope to provoke responses that they can then use to portray how they're being, you know, they're being oppressed by the Israelis. Everything, this is all a kind of propaganda move by them to try to create pressure on Israel or at least stigmatize Israel, the last thing that they're doing is being is thinking about the well-being of the Palestinians within Gaza. And I think many Israeli leaders would probably say, you know, of course we feel bad for these Palestinians, but this doesn't really have anything to do with us, they might say, because, you know, Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005. No Israeli has been in Gaza since 2014, since the, the war that year. Do you think that's the right way of looking at it? Well, I do think that, look, Israel is one of the few places that seems to actually provide assistance there. Yeah, there are some assistance that comes from the outside, from European countries. Uh, the fact is, you know, Israel produced a, a, a plan for rehabilitation, economic rehabilitation in Gaza that it brought to a donors conference. Uh, what's interesting in all this is Gaza may be the one area where there's a broad consensus in Israel that the conditions are so bad that there needs to be some kind of economic renovation there. And so you, you actually have a kind of uh, interest in broad development in Gaza because there's a recognition, there's an understanding. If the conditions are so bad, then there's nothing to, to lose. And that's one of the Part of the problem now is that Hamas is under increasing pressure within Gaza, and so it wants to divert attention away, and that's part of what's driving this. I think the nightmare scenario for Israel, perhaps, would be tens of thousands of Palestinians marching on the fence in Gaza in a truly nonviolent act of protest. Israel couldn't allow those people to tear down the fence, you know, driven by the the horrible situation behind them and, and come into Israel. Uh, but it might not be able to stop them without causing massive 
casualties. Is that is that a particular concern with regard to these protests and, and the thought that they're going to be ongoing from now until mid-May? Well, I think that is a concern, although, the, you know, the history of the Palestinian movement has never been characterized by nonviolence. Right. And even this this march, this demonstration that was was planned, the vast majority may have been peaceful, but there was a certain percentage who were not. Uh, and there were some with guns, there were some throwing Molotov cocktails, there were some who were throwing stones, and there were others who were using burning tires to try to breach the defense. Uh, eight of the 15 who were killed by the Israelis turned out to have been members of the of the uh, Al-Qassam Brigades, which is the, the military wing of Hamas. So these are the kind of people that you, you can see trying to use a mass march as a cover to actually see if they could breach the fence uh, and get into Israel and, and probably carry out acts of, of terror and violence. Whenever anything like this happens, we always hear other countries or, or multinational organizations calling for Israel to exercise restraint, calling for both sides to avoid escalation. Do you feel that Israel exercised uh, restraint here? Was this an appropriate response? Well, I think that, you know, I do think that the last thing Israel wanted to be doing was to be killing those who were not a threat uh, or wounding those who were not a threat. Now, obviously, in a confused situation, it's not always easy to to do exactly what you want. Uh, but I, you know, the question I would basically pose to those who call on the Israelis to do this, what would you be doing? You know, this is, this was a march called to return to Israel, basically the return, not to return to Israel, the return. Right. The idea is break down the fence, go and go back to your place. Now, is there any country in the world that would tolerate that? It's a rhetorical question. So I do ask the question, what do you expect the Israelis to do? You know, I think it shouldn't just be others calling on the Israelis to exercise restraint. It should be others calling on, the, on Hamas not to do this and that this is seen as an illegitimate act on their part. Uh, and they bear the consequences for it. You know, it's unfortunate that there aren't more voices saying that. Well, we certainly agree. Uh, Thinking about the future, uh, someday soon the Trump administration will unveil the peace proposal that Jared Kushner, Jason Greenblatt, and others have been working on. Uh, Have you seen any reason to uh, expect it to be a a wise proposal uh, or to expect the Israelis uh, and the Palestinians to be amenable to it? It's really two different questions that you're asking. One is, will it be a a wise proposal? And two, will the Israelis and Palestinians be amenable to it? On the former, I will say this. I mean, I do think they're making a serious effort, and I do think it will be uh, a serious proposal. Now, whether it will cross the threshold that gives it credibility with both sides, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. Obviously, the Palestinians at this point feel, since the uh, the Trump declaration on recognition of, of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, they have they have said that the U.S. can no longer uh, be the only broker. They haven't said the U.S. can't play a role, but they've said it can't be the only broker, and they're not dealing. They're not having any official dealings with the U.S. So, in many ways, Mahmoud Abbas has, has put himself in a position where it's not so easy for him to respond, even if it was a proposal that has elements in it that, you know, Palestinians might want to embrace. I think the critical question is going to be, does it cross the threshold of credibility of leading Arab 
states and, and leading Arab leaders. Because if it does, you know, and, and for it to do that, it will have to have elements in it that will appeal to the Arabs and the Palestinians, and the more it appeals to them, it'll create problems on the Israeli side, just as the more it appeals to the Israelis, it'll create problems on the other side. So the, the challenge uh, in producing something that generates a positive response, or even, let's put it this way, a response where both sides may not like everything in it, both sides may have reservations about it, but both sides could say, okay, there's enough in it that it warrants a continuing discussion. That, in my mind, would be a pretty successful move. I mean, obviously, the, the best scenario is a little different than that. The best scenario is the administration goes quietly to the leading Arab states, having already done a lot of coordination with Israel, goes quietly to the leading Arab states and lays out you know, what the what the proposal is, works out what is a coordinated public response, including a, a script, gains a kind of embrace from the Arabs, and then is able to use that also with the Europeans. That's the way I think that you would get uh, Mahmoud Abbas to respond. Then I think he would find it very difficult not to be responsive. Now, obviously, to do that, it's going to have to address things that they're going to that the Arabs are going to have to be able to point to. Think about the following. The more the Arabs assume responsibility for embracing this, uh, in a sense, the more they're giving a kind of cover to the Palestinians to embrace it, the more they have to be able to say, this is a proposal that enables them to deliver for the Palestinians what they can't deliver for themselves. So it has to be credible. It has to, it has to meet certain needs. It's, it's not if you have a proposal where at least some part of Arab East Jerusalem is, is not there as a capital for the Palestinians, you're not going to have an Arab embrace. So my point here is there's going to have to be some things in it that they can point to like that, and they, borders that would uh, permit for a viable Palestinian state uh, with territories that are uh, largely contiguous. I mean, it's going to have to meet certain standards, or it simply won't draw uh, an Arab response. And there is a, you know, there's a potential opportunity now because not only do you see the convergence of uh, strategic interests as it relates to Iran between the Gulf states and Israel, but you've also now had the Crown Prince uh, of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, say for the first time that any Arab leader has said this. Uh, in answer to a question that Jeff Goldberg uh, posed to him in an interview where Goldberg asked, uh, do the Jews have a right to at least a part of their ancestral homeland? And he gave the answer, yes. Right, he referred and I, to the Jews as a people and as a nation. That, I can tell you, that's never been done by Arab leaders before, including Arab leaders who have embraced the two-state outcome. They have embraced Israel as a fact. They have not embraced Israel as a state that has a right to be there. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that interview that uh, that, that Jeffrey Goldberg conducted with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, because there were some in the aftermath who were maybe ran a little too far with it and reported it as MBS, the crown prince, says uh, that Israel has a right to exist, which I'm not sure he, he quite said that. I think actually he did say that, because he started, the question was, do they have a right to, do the Jewish people have a right to live uh, and at least a part of their ancestral homeland. And he, he came back and he said, all people have a right to live in in their nation. And then he wanted to say that both the Israelis and Palestinians had a right to the land. So, you know, 
Uh, did he say it as explicitly as you just posed it? No, but that's pretty hard to escape that meaning. That's, that's what that meant, and that, that's what I'm saying had not been said before. Mm-hmm. I saw on on Twitter that one of our previous guests, uh, Ambassador Dan Shapiro, was kind of downplaying uh, the impact of what he had said. Yeah, I just disagree with that uh, because it's a um, you know as someone who is a longtime negotiator and having dealt with this issue for a very long time, what I what I saw for a very long time was a kind of acceptance of Israel as a fact, but a reluctance to acknowledge that it had a right, that the state of Israel has a right to be here because it has rightful claims. Uh, this was something that was always denied, in part because the Palestinians seemed to think that if they acknowledged that the Israelis had a right, it somehow detracted from their rights. Uh, it was much more of the zero-sum reality. So for me, having experienced this for a long time, uh, I don't downplay its significance. And by the way, to prove that it's significant, today one of the Qataris came out for the first time and said it. It's almost, this is like, you know, they're in a, their conflict with the Saudis, they have to be in competition now. Well, <laughs> because Mohammed bin Salman crossed that threshold, now the Qataris feel that they have to cross it as well. When I was, you know, when I was first asked about this, I said, this is, it hasn't happened before, it's a precedent. Now, the fact that at least you have one other saying it, it begins to make it a normal part of the reality. Well, that's important. Ambassador Ross, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us, and uh, Chag Sameach. Thank you very much. It seemed like a Passover miracle. As Jews around the world mark the holiday that celebrates our exodus from slavery to freedom in Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu announced a deal with the United Nations that would allow more than half of the 37,000 Sudanese and Eritrean asylum seekers who have been living in Israel to stay in Israel, while resettling the rest in other Western countries like Canada and Germany. Many Israelis welcomed the announcement, as did American Jewish organizations, including AJC. But just a few hours later, facing criticism at home from within his right-wing coalition, Prime Minister Netanyahu announced he was suspending the deal. By the next day, just 20 hours after he had announced it, Netanyahu posted on his Facebook page saying that the deal was canceled. Joining us now to talk through this whirlwind of policy and emotion is Amir Tibon, the Washington, D.C. correspondent for Haaretz. Amir, glad you could join us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Trump have both made the comparison between America's border with Mexico and Israel's border with Egypt. Now, this might make it easy for Americans to understand the asylum seeker issue that Israel is dealing with now, or it might confuse the situation. Can you explain the backstory in Israel? Yeah, what we're seeing this week in Israel, the whole debate about the the deal with the UN about the asylum seekers, it's a story that goes back more than a decade. Um, essentially, in, in the early 2000s, and even to a certain extent in the late 1990s, um, there was a, a large immigration wave from different countries in Africa um, to, you know, to in the entire uh, Mediterranean area. And Israel also saw some of that traffic. It was totally illegal immigration. 
Uh, Israel does not accept uh, immigrants uh, on such large scales except for people who make Aliyah. But we had a long and open border with Egypt, uh, basically dunes of sand uh, between Israel and the Sinai that was completely breached. And so you had hundreds of thousands of people who, you know, walking into the country. Um, some of them stayed, many others left to other countries, some were deported. And essentially, we found ourselves in a situation where we had to close down that border because otherwise there was a real threat that uh, uh, hundreds of thousands and maybe even millions of people will try to walk into Israel through this perilous journey through Sinai. The government built a, a, a fence, a border fence, not a wall like Trump is talking about, but a pretty sophisticated uh, border fence along the southern border with Egypt. Uh, and that, that fence was completed, uh, I think, about six years ago. And ever since then, we've actually seen a very large drop in the number of illegal uh, entrances into Israel through the Egyptian border. It's much harder to make the journey today. Some would say even uh, impossible. Uh, in, in addition to the border fence itself, there is a lot of border security done by the IDF. But one problem remained, which is the fate of the people who have already made that journey and have settled illegally in Israel. That, what do we do with these people? We're talking here about a group of, I think today the, the numbers we're, we're looking at are even less than 40,000 people, but still it's, you know, it's tens of thousands of people. What do we do with them? Some of them cannot be deported to their home countries because you will have civil wars there or very uh, brutal dictatorships, and that would put the people at risk. And Israel uh, searched for ways to, to deport them to other countries. There was some kind of deal with two African countries, Rwanda and Uganda, that would take a large uh, number of those people. You can call them asylum seekers. Some are refugees. Uh, some in Israel choose the term infiltrators or illegals. And, you know, language is a big part of this debate in Israel right now. How do you even describe those people? But that deal with the two African countries, Rwanda and Uganda, seems to have failed. And that's when the alternative that has dominated the headlines in Israel this week, uh, 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 an alternative deal with the UN, came into play. So uh, you mentioned these these different possible ways of referring to these people. Um, you know, you said asylum seekers or refugees or infiltrators, as the people on the right would say. President Trump got slammed last year when he referred to Latino immigrants as bad hombres, and he he tied them directly to all kinds of of crime, to gang violence, to drug crime. Is the same kind of thing happening in Israel? Is is there a sense that these uh, asylum seekers are are involved uh, in criminal behavior. Are they involved in criminal behavior? I'm not an expert on the numbers, and I've seen different arguments on this issue. Some on the on the right wing, and 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 you know, in the groups that support the deportation, do tie this population to crime. I've seen numbers that show the exact opposite that they're less involved in crime, and that mostly just trying to make a living. But I do think that if we stick to the politics of this issue. It's true that this is, uh, in some ways, reminiscent of what we're seeing in the United States. You basically have a large population that, on the one hand, came here to Israel illegally. On the other hand, it's true that many of them are uh, running away from terrible circumstances that we would not wish anyone to to, to, to endure, to go through. And uh, 
the, the, the real discussion is, is there a way to, at least some of them, maybe incorporate in the Israeli economy and the society in a way that would also benefit Israel? Many of them work in jobs that are not exactly what most Israelis would, would want uh, their, themselves or their children to, to work at. And there are some sectors of the economy, like, for example, restaurants in Tel Aviv that have cried out against the idea of this mass deportation. They said it could actually hurt their business. And on the other hand, you have the people who say this has led to crime and to uh, housing problems in the southern neighborhoods of Tel Aviv. And so you have a, a theoretical discussion, let's say, about the immigration laws and about what's just and, and unjust, mixed up with a practical argument about can these people become part of society and the economy. Some of them have been in Israel for more than a decade. Some of them have children that consider Israel the only place that they know, that they've ever lived in, that you know were born in Israel. Uh, and on the other hand, you have people who say, well, you know, this causes problems in our neighborhoods. So it's a mix of the, the let's say, the theoretical argument with just practical, everyday kind of problems. And so... What did happen this week with the U.N. agreement and then the cancellation of that agreement? So I think that for a long time what we saw in Israel was kind of a binary discussion uh, between people who said, let's deport them, which was the government plan, the deportation to Uganda and Rwanda, even deportation in cases where people don't want to live and it will be forced. And other people, more from the left wing, who said, let's find ways to incorporate them and keep them in the country. I think what Prime Minister Netanyahu did in the beginning of this week, and you know, it's been a long week, but (laughs) in the beginning of the week, Monday, he did a very smart move. He tried to find some kind of a compromise between these two arguments. And he negotiated an agreement with the UN that, uh, and this will be my personal opinion, but I think was a pretty good, decent uh, agreement that basically said that the 16,000 of these uh, asylum seekers, infiltrators, whatever you call them, uh, will remain in Israel, and, and 16,000, uh, and then 16,000 will uh, move to other Western countries that have some kind of agreement with the UN, but. They are. They have to take some of these asylum seekers into the countries like Germany, Italy, and Canada, and others. Uh, and there was a very, very detailed mechanism of how many years it will take, and and what will happen with the rest of the population, and what Israel is allowed to to do. And, and, and I thought it was a pretty good deal. The main reason that he went for it was because he knew, and it hasn't been made public yet, but he already knew that the earlier deal with Rwanda, that was supposed to be the country that will take the the deportations, had collapsed. There was pressure uh, on the government there uh, not to go along with this deal, and uh, when the Rwandans realized that they're going to get people who come to their country in handcuffs because they did not ask to be deported there, they decided to back away from it. And Netanyahu thought that he could have a better alternative with the UN that would actually lead to a situation where more of these people leave Israel. So that agreement was announced on Monday, and he won a lot of praise from it, uh, a lot of praise for it from uh, people who don't usually support Prime Minister Netanyahu. Let's say the editorial board of Haaretz is one example. <laughs> um, and of course, in the American Jewish community, I thought that there was a, lot, a, a really sense of uh, pride and relief, because I know that this has been an issue that has been uh, creating a lot of conversation 
in the American Jewish community and people who love and support Israel are bothered by the deportation plan. And so people were very relieved when the government reached this agreement with the UN. The problem was that Netanyahu also received very strong backlash from it, from his own right-wing base of support. And it was because of that criticism from within his own base that he decided, basically 24 hours after uh, signing the, and announcing the deal with the UN, to backtrack and cancel it under the pressure. Amir, you mentioned that many in the American Jewish community felt a sense of pride and a sense of relief when the deal was announced. I would certainly count myself uh, among those who had a sense that, you know, Israel was was always at the end of the day going to do what was right here. And uh, certainly AJC, you know, expressed our, our praise for the uh, for the deal. And then unfortunately, we had to express how regrettable we found it that the deal had been canceled. You are based in Washington reporting on America and you write in both English and Hebrew. So in some ways, you both explain America to Israelis and Israel to Americans. You, Amir, I think, are well positioned uh, to comment on the relationship between American Jews and Israel. So uh, my question is, is this refugee flip-flop going to be a significant wedge issue between our two communities? I can't predict the future. And this is an event that just happened in the last 48 hours. And I don't think I can say um, with uh, certainty how it will affect. But I do think that it's part of a broader trend we are seeing um, where people in the American Jewish community who consider themselves strong supporters of Israel and who advocate for Israel in the American public arena are disappointed by recent decisions of this Israeli government, the current right-wing coalition led by Netanyahu. Um, I'm putting aside for, for a moment the Palestinian issue, which is in itself, of course, creating disagreements and tensions both in Israel itself and here in the Jewish community. But I, I felt that around this issue of the asylum seekers, uh, kind of like what we saw last summer with the Western Wall issue, when the government uh, signed this agreement to create an egalitarian prayer space at the Western Wall, but then backtracked on it. I think in, in this case, uh, just like in the asylum seekers case, we saw even some people from the more uh, right-wing parts of the community, people in the Orthodox community, which on the Palestinian issue is usually more supportive of the government, uh, even people from those circles express uh, concern and uh, uh, uncomfort with the decisions of the government. Uh, and I think that's definitely something that should raise some kind of a, a concern and alarm among Israeli officials. I think also in the broader sense, this is an issue that within progressive uh, liberal circles in American society is not going to help Israel. We all agree that Israel has a problem today in those circles. There is a very strong level of support for Israel among the general American public. And uh, of course, among more conservative and, and Republicans, Israel is very popular. But every, every Israeli official who deals with the United States will tell you that they are worried and concerned about support levels for Israel among the progressive liberal parts of the country, younger people, you know, college campuses. I'm not sure that the decision by the government to uh, back away from this UND and once again look for a deportation uh, plan will make things easier for Israel in those arenas. 
Uh, and I think we will, you know, it, it, again, like I said, I cannot predict what will be the backlash and, and how exactly we will see it. But uh, I think it's it's safe to say that there will be strong disappointment both in the Jewish community and among people who support Israel from those more left-wing parts of the country. Does deportation come next, or do you think that some other kind of plan along the lines of this one will ultimately be what Israel settles on? Because the you know the Israeli High Court has put pretty strong restrictions in place about the circumstances under which the government could legally deport these asylum seekers. So, you know, do you think that we'll see another country step in and say, you know, we'll, we'll take them, will the UN or, or some other multinational body help out in the end? Or has Netanyahu kind of empowered by his, his right flank just drawn a line in the sand? It's a great question. There are two main obstacles that the government is facing right now when it comes to mass forced deportation. The first obstacle, as you mentioned, is the Supreme Court in Israel, which has put very strong boundaries. One initiative that we are seeing right now from Netanyahu and other right-wing members of his coalition is to pass new legislation that would basically allow the government to bypass the Supreme Court on this issue. I'm not sure they will have enough votes for it in the coalition because there is one centrist party, the party of Moshe Kahlon, Kulano, that I think some of his members will not vote for it. And also there might be two or three people in Likud, like Benny Begin, the son of yeah. the late Prime Minister Menachem Begin, who might not uh, feel comfortable to go against the Supreme Court and basically change the constitutional, you know, we don't have a constitution, but let's say, you know, the, the, what in American terms would be called the constitutional uh, uh, framework in Israel. Um, we'll see about that. But if they want to do mass deportations, they definitely have to, to put forward that kind of bill, because otherwise, how do you, you know, how do you overcome the Supreme Court? The second challenge is finding a country that is willing to take these refugees. And as I said, in the Rwandan case, what sealed the deal was when the Rwandans realized that they're going to receive from, you know, people will come down from airplanes in Kigali Airport in handcuffs. And they said, we're not interested in that. So will the government find another African country that is willing to go and and do that kind of thing? Um, I think they are still counting on Uganda, which is the second country that was in the original plan. Uh, And the Ugandans have been sending mixed signals. On the one hand, the government in Israel told the Supreme Court that they believe it's still possible to reach an agreement with Uganda and that they have a special envoy there as we speak. On the other hand, uh, we had in Haaretz a statement from the president's office in Uganda saying there is no deal with Israel, there is no negotiations, we're not going to take any refugees, Israel should find other solutions. And we've seen a similar statement by the foreign minister of Uganda. So it is a confusing situation. We just don't know if the government will be able to overcome these two obstacles. And if they want, will they be able to go back to the UN plan? Will the UN still be willing to do this kind of deal after they've been humiliated like that? Last question. Many commentators have been making political predictions based on how quickly Prime Minister Netanyahu flipped uh, on this issue. Do you think there's something to that? Just a, just a few weeks ago, uh, elections seemed like they were right around the corner. And then it looked actually like maybe this government would do something quite rare in Israel and, and finish off its term. Uh, did elections just get more likely? I think that's a smart read of the situation. I think Netanyahu's decision to 
capitulate to to people who are writing comments on Facebook uh, basically signals that he wants to have an election sometime in the next few months, and he's concerned about losing votes. If he thought the next election is going to be uh, on the date when it is set to take place, which is in, in the fall of 2019, he probably would have said, well, right now it's, it's only April 2018, There's a year and a half until the election. I can push through this plan. People will be angry now, but in a few months when the asylum seekers, will, some of them will leave, people will understand that it was a good plan. And he would have gone to fight for it in public opinion and maybe convince people that it's the right thing to do. Instead of doing that, he gave up without a fight. He didn't even try to convince his supporters that this was a good deal. He saw the comments on Facebook and he immediately backtracked And I think that signals that he, he is counting votes right now. Even though his party is in a good position in the polls, and it looks like if there were an election tomorrow, Likud would win pretty easily, he's still uh, uh, very concerned, and that's why he decided to, to make this very quick flip-flop and basically let his Facebook page run the country. Amir, thank you very much for sharing your insight. Thank you, and Chag Sameach to all our listeners. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? The New England Patriots. Good for the Jews? Now, it's not football season, and I myself am a New York Giants fan, so I don't have much love for the Patriots, but... When it was reported that their owner, Robert Kraft, a committed Jew and a generous Jewish philanthropist, had donated the team plane to help the students from Parkland, Florida, get to the March for Our Lives in Washington last month, I felt a swell of Jewish pride. Now, this week, the New York Times reported that Patriots wide receiver Julian Edelman, a hero of Super Bowl 49 and a member of the tribe, alerted the authorities when a teenager commented on one of Edelman's Instagram posts that he was going to shoot people in his school. We're all grateful to Julian Edelman for helping to avert this catastrophe. If we can keep our students safe, that would be good for everyone. And it will also be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at ajc.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is Scott Reitherman. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.